We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for Subscription Stories, True Tales from the Trenches. In my work with subscription and membership models, one of the books that influenced me the most was Free, The Future of a Radical Price. Free was written by Chris Anderson, editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine and published in 2009 by Hyperion. That book got me thinking about the role of free in subscriptions in a more strategic and systemic way. If your business hasn't analyzed the possible role of free in your business model, whether as a free trial, a free sample, or a freemium offering, you're missing out. The judicious use of free can be one of the most powerful tools in your subscription pricing toolkit. Today's guest, Elena Verna, is a growth enthusiast and pricing expert. She's been responsible for growth at companies like Miro, SurveyMonkey, and Malwarebytes. Today, she's at Reforge, a membership-based learning community where she teaches monetization. In today's conversation, we're talking about the role of free, the rise of growth as a discipline, and what it means to truly be beta-driven. Welcome to Subscription Stories, Elena. Thank you for having me, Robbie. Glad to be here. So you're an entrepreneur in residence at Reforge and a teacher. And Reforge is a learning community with a tagline, where tech comes to scale. What are you teaching in your monetization class? What I teach on monetization is everything that I've learned, not only from talking to other incredible leaders at those companies, but also experienced myself through my work at SurveyMonkey, Malwarebytes, Miro, or a slew of advising companies that I've been engaged with. And how do you come off from not just having a success moment, an intuition, a theory that you're going to go and fix your or improve your monetization model, but how do you apply a scalable framework where you can make data-driven decisions and then you can apply scientific method in order to find the best possible monetization model for your company? And this comes from many, many patterns, many, many instances of what success and failure actually looks like, and really putting it into place where it's applicable to any industry, it's applicable to any business, because fundamentals, the skeleton of it is actually fairly similar. It's just there is different evidence that augments some of the decision making that you have to do. But it's really exciting to bring people away from just looking at monetization as the price and pull them out and to say monetization is an ecosystem that drives your acquisition, that drives your retention, that defines your growth model for the business. And the more you tie it together where the value that you can get out of the monetization is closely aligned to the value that you're getting to customer, the better your business is going to be in the long term. You brought up a bunch of really important points that I want to just emphasize. One of them is that a lot of what you're teaching comes from the trenches. It comes from working with a variety of companies, not just one, not just academically, but actually trying to come up with the right pricing strategy, the right retention strategy, the right acquisition strategy 
to optimize revenue, a lot of different companies and building out frameworks. That combination, I think, of being in the trenches and then taking all that data and trying to come up with frameworks that can be used by different organizations, I think is really, really tricky. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs think that because they've had one success, they're all good. Yeah, it's tricky from multiple perspectives because just because you had that one success does not mean that your success is scalable. There, You might have had luck and that's incredible. It's incredible if you had luck, but it's important to actually understand why that success occurred and don't spend a lot of time doing it. We just take it for granted and then we want to replicate it in the next business or the next company that we go and work on. And that's not always the case. You actually need to understand why it's happening. And then most importantly, we look at the revenue growth as a success metric, as an outcome, as an actual input into our decision-making versus revenue comes at the end of creating incredible experience for your customers. So if you don't put revenue in perspective, and if you rely on just few data points of successes that you've had, you actually have a really big probability of failure going forward because you haven't created patterns around it and you're really still fundamentally acting on intuition. And what intuition unfortunately creates is a huge perception versus reality gap uh, for your customers because you don't fully understand uh, through quantitative, qualitative, or experimentation data sets of where the opportunity is. And you're following your intuition, which is guided by your historical experiences which can be flawed, um, especially if the inputs in the previous company were completely different um, into that decision-making framework. So I had as a guest last season, Hunter Madeley, who is the CEO of Vena. And he had, like you, been at multiple successful companies and talked a lot about the risk of bringing the playbook from the prior company and handing it out to the new team and saying, this is how we're going to do things. How do you teach people to manage their intuitions, which did get them pretty far, with data? Sort of how do you balance that? Because if you're completely data-driven and you don't go with any hunches or any intuition, I think you run the risk of never making any leaps forward. Stalling your innovation. Exactly. Stalling your innovation. So how do you balance that? What do you teach at your class? What's your point of view on intuition versus data? I think both are important, exactly like you said. However, to me, it's important to understand why my intuition worked. There's always inputs into my intuition. Some of them are quantitative, some of them are qualitative. I think it's great to have a fantastic intuition, but people that have great intuition are usually understand the decision-making pattern that happens in their brain, maybe some subconscious level, but there are still inputs that go into your intuition. And if you have just a gut feeling, but it's completely unsubstantiated by anything, that's great, but that's not replicatable and it's not scalable and it's not sustainable. So to me, it's always reverse engineering some of the decisions that mm. what company were making to understand what are the inputs that actually led into it? What were the right assumptions? What were the wrong assumptions? Just to create that sustainable, scalable growth, because then you need to be able to drive those intuitions, so to speak, in quotation marks at the sustainable, predictable level going forward. Your intuition goes into your hypothesis. I have a feeling this is going to work. And then you do a test and then you look at the results and say, did my hypothesis prove out? And so it's like intuition, data, intuition, data. And that's, I think, is what when you talk about being beta driven, you have this like 
hashtag beta driven that you put at the end of a lot of your emails and your notes and your biography. Is that what you mean by being beta driven? I think it for me personally, it goes even further than that. I think it's extremely important to make decisions forward based on what happened in the past. If we don't learn from our history, if we don't learn from the data that we have, how can we do best predictions of what's going to work in the future? Because otherwise we're not learning from what happened in the past. And that's why being data-driven is so near and dear my heart. I want to evolve. I want to evolve myself. I want to evolve the company. I want to evolve the industry. But for that, we need to learn from the past what worked, what didn't, and then move forward and take appropriate risks when they're justified. But if we don't look at what happened in data, which data is always historical, there's very little data that can predict things for you (laughs) very accurately. But if you're not looking at historical data, then you're really, you're just missing a really big part of validation for some of the decisions that you need to make. And it blows my mind when people disregard it or they just say, no, I just want to go and follow my intuition. This is an input. I'm not saying you have to make a decision on this input, but I'm saying that it has to be an input in your decision making. And then you can add any other assumptions that you want to make on top of it. But without it, you're just shooting in the dark. Why shoot in the dark if there is already light that you can turn on so you can know which direction to go? (laughs) Can you give me an example of a time that you combined your intuition with data to make a good decision? I'll give an example of Netlify, which is the company that I'm working in advising at right now. We have and collecting a lot of data of how our monetization model at Netlify is uh, working with our developer user base. There are some places that it works wonderfully. There are some places that is very clear there is a lack of product market fit in our monetization model to certain use cases. And it's very important to understand what works and what doesn't in order for us to take a next step of evolution in monetizing our platform at Netlify. So to me, I have a very clear the existing revenue, where it's working, how it's happening, that I need to protect and continue growing. And the huge opportunities that we still have in whether our monetization decelerates some of the growth or whether we actually just fail to monetize certain sectors that I can go and evolve monetization model to. You mean that you have a product, it's selling well in some markets, and then there's other markets that you thought it was going to do well in that it's not doing well in? Correct. So by looking at the usage of the product, we're identifying that certain segments are just not being monetized in the way that we believe. So top down believe that they should be monetized in terms of what our overall strategy is against. So you have areas and segments and markets that it's working in wonderfully. And then certain areas that we think it should be working in, but it's not. And understanding why it's not working and then evolving the monetization model to both encompass to existing segments that it's working for because we don't want to alienate anybody, but then also evolve it to the point where actually it works for all of the segments that we want to monetize within our user base is extremely important because otherwise I can just change it to whatever I feel my intuition, the most simplistic version, so to speak, that I want. But then I have a high risk of losing existing revenue. I have a high risk of not even capturing new opportunity in revenue. So the full understanding of where your monetization model is actually working or not becomes the crucial decision factor in terms of how to continuously evolve and grow the company. What I like about that example is that you broke down between, we thought it was going to work here, here, and here. It's working here, but not in the other places. We're going to set that the successful thing aside and understand why we were successful there so that we don't damage it. 
And then we're going to focus on really understanding where we went wrong with our assumption about the other market. Exactly. And then we're going to adjust. And I like what you're doing is you're doing it in a very narrow and precise way, almost like a surgeon, right? We're going to protect this area and this area and focus on this area. And that you're using the data, you're looking back and saying, what did we think was going to happen and where did something different happen? And I think what's important, and and please tell me if you agree or, or don't agree, but whether you have tons and tons of data to support this, or even just the process of analyzing and looking at what happened in a more precise way is going to help you move forward without kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, so two things. A, it breaks down the huge monumental problem into pieces that are actually tactical, more tactical and more manageable to address and to answer. So it doesn't become like I need to boil the ocean. Mm -hmm. There's a focus that I have. And then number two, it's actually not about the quantity of the data. A lot of times, even if you don't have any quantitative data to support it, you can go and talk to customers. You can start seeing patterns in the interviews. A lot of it can be solved with qualitative approach. So it's not all about quantitative. So when I say data, data can take so many different lenses. To me, it starts in quantitative. It's augmented with qualitative, and then it finishes with experimentation data sets that connects quantitative and qualitative together. Because in quantitative, I know what is happening. Qualitative is kind of telling me why it's happening. And then I can understand how I can connect what and why through A-B tests and experiments, where if I change something, I can see impact on the behavior for the customers. You don't have to have it all. Honestly, even small insights from your customers sometimes can make huge difference in your ability to make the right decision for your strategy and your company. Yeah. It's so important to not throw up your hands and say, well, we're a small company, so we don't have data. You can always ask your customers. Absolutely. Right. You can always look at what you've sold and what you haven't, you know, what you thought you were going to sell, what you haven't sold. There's always some data. So I really appreciate that you point out that this is not some, you need a data analytics team and lots of fancy platforms. You can just do it in a more bootstrapped way. Absolutely. So to me, let me just say that it's about being a data-driven culture. It's whenever that all of the people that are working at your company are looking for the data in order to augment their decision-making. So it has nothing to do with whether or not you have an analytics team. Now, as you scale, in order for that data to be proactively surfaced to the decision-makers, you do need to have an analytics team. But I never advocate for huge analytics team at the beginning. Even at the company of a size, let's say, of 100 people, you think you need to have maybe two analysts max that to start with for you to be able to actually surface some of those insights. It's just, it's a necessary function of a culture. It's not a subject of whether or not you have an analytics team. That's really helpful. You don't need an analytics team. You need the culture of analysis of looking at data to make your decisions. I know you've been working a lot at thinking a lot about the role of free and freemium. Can you define what that is first? What freemium means to me is a really big strategy for the company as a whole, because freemium is such a loaded concept in terms of the goodness that it can deliver to your company. It can displace your competition sneakily because you offer it for free versus they're charging. It can drive your product-led growth framework for your business because your free users can generate either network effects or virality within your product. It can be an incredible product building asset, especially with the network effects or user feedback that you can generate 
It can attract opportunistic audiences that you're not solving for right now, but because your product is free, they're already becoming an adjacent customer that you can evolve your strategy to. It can be an important vector of how you actually lower your cost of acquisition for your enterprise businesses. So it actually can change dynamics of profitability for your company. Yet a lot of people are seeing free as just, I have a paid plan or I have a paid product and should or should I not give something away for free? And that to me is just you know, trying to almost optimize your paid as opposed to saying freemium is the core of my strategy that has a multi-pronged approach in terms of benefits that it's delivering to both my customers and my business. And it's driving so much more than just my monetization. So to me, a freemium at the end of it's a strategic move. And it's a move that I, I mean, we can talk about it more that I believe that if you don't take now or when the time is right, I'm not saying for every industry, the time is right, that somebody will, and they will disrupt you by taking that move. So freemium, it's a free ongoing offering alongside a paid ongoing offering. And then there's, you talked about free trial, you talked about free as an ongoing thing versus as a one-time thing. And you talked about all of the different uses that free can play in your business model. I'm curious if, did you ever read that book by Chris Anderson, Free? No, but I need to. It's on my, <laughs> it's my reading list on my next vacation. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it totally blew my mind because he basically took the concept of free and talked about every way that it's been used sort of in the history of business and about the emotions and the psychology of free and why people are willing to try something for free, but not for one cent, why we take free stuff at trade shows, you know, some little squeezy toy, even though we're like, what are we going to do with this when I get at home? And talks about how to thoughtfully incorporate it into your business model. And you just made a pretty impassioned speech about the power of free and how you're kind of a zealot on this topic. Have you ever had an experience with a company, you've worked with a lot of companies, where you came to the conclusion that there was not a role for free in their business model? I'll adjust that statement. I came to a conclusion that there is not a role of free right now in the strategy for that company. I have never come across the business where I don't believe there is not a role for free at some point in their strategy. So it's all about timing. I'm not saying that everybody should just go freemium. In some cases, your cost dynamics will just not allow you to make a profitability out of uh, that strategy. But all of our costs are continuously going down. We're becoming more and more efficient. We're becoming more and more effective. So at some point, the dynamics and the equation start to make sense. Is it for everyone now? No. But I have never come across the business that I would not be able to envision some sort of free version some point in the future if they want to either launch or if they want to displace a competitor going up or down the market. So you and I have both worked with SurveyMonkey. I worked with them really early on my journey to understanding subscription models. They were the second client. I had Netflix first and SurveyMonkey second. And those were two really formative experiences in terms of thinking about what makes subscription models work, and more specifically, the role of free. Because, you know, as you know, Netflix has a trial, which they're in some places actually doing away with, two-week free trial. SurveyMonkey has both free trials, and they also have a freemium model where you can basically use a version of their product for free forever and get tremendous value without ever paying them a cent. And I featured them. I featured SurveyMonkey in my first book in the chapter on pricing. And I'm really curious, when I worked with them, they were going from one paid offering to three. 
Today, they have like multiple personal options and business options and free options. And I'm curious kind of what you make of their pricing journey and what, if anything, your pricing philosophy would say about some of the choices that they've made. SurveyMonkey, when they started, their main competition was really paper. So paper surveys. What does it take for you to create paper surveys? Nothing. You maybe download a template or you write something up in docs and you print it. So it's the cost of paper. Maybe it's the cost of printing. So they had to go and change fundamental habits of how people serving market, which is a pretty big ask. So all of a sudden, instead of handing out these papers, I have to ask you to go into this link and submit your answers. There's so many more efficiency and effectiveness gains. It's so much better for the planet, so much more scalable way of collecting feedback. But it's a fundamental change of habit that already exists. When you're going up against changing existing habit, user habit, you need to think really hard about every single friction that you will introduce along that journey. And pricing, where you have to pay for something, is one of the biggest frictions in customer psychology and customers' mind. They will give it a try if it's free and if there's no friction. They will, especially more of a pioneer personas within us, they will go and they will attempt it. But the moment the paywall comes up, and especially if I have not seen that this way is actually better than my old way, then forget it. They will never would get an adoption and they would never actually enter the market and scale to the point that they've scaled now. So SurveyMonkey was extremely smart from the beginning, even though they were bootstrapped, going with freemium offering to market because they understood that they need to change fundamental user habits and they needed to lower that friction and monetize on more complex use cases from segments that were a lot more price insensitive that wouldn't mind paying for it but they still saw the value through freemium offering. So they have two types of personas. One is the type of people that will never pay. And that's okay. They actually drive so much more virality and casual contact through distributing surveys to respondents. And our respondents are aware of SurveyMonkey brand. And then there is a second segment where people actually get the value. They get to the aha moment within the product and then they go pay. So it's a lot more monetized on usage compared to being monetized right at the beginning before I actually have an understanding of my probability to materialize the value that the product can deliver. There's a couple of important things that I want to tease out. So one of them is in the case of SurveyMonkey, they started with free. They had the freemium offering first and then as they identified segments that could benefit from additional features, additional services, they created kind of higher level tiers. You know, I remember them looking at professional market researchers, for example, who said, you know, I'll pay a premium to be able to store my data or enterprises that said, we'll pay a premium to have all of our surveys with the same design with our, you know, our own design on it, things like that, these new features that they're getting on top of that. But you talked about the starting point being get it out there for free so people get used to doing their surveys digitally. And so it's free and then that leads to paid. But the opposite is also true that you know many organizations find that they have a product, like you talked about Google, there are a lot of personal productivity apps out there, a lot of subscription-based or ongoing-based productivity apps that find themselves competing with Google Docs and saying they're giving it away for free. For them, it's almost a loss leader because of the way that Google uses free in their business model versus the way that I use free in my business model. And suddenly I have to match my competition. So that's where you go from paid to free. And I agree with you that in both cases, it's forcing innovation and the customer does benefit. 
But it's interesting to think about how it can go both ways. You can go from free to paid. You can also be forced to go from paid to free. Yeah, absolutely. Love or hate Google, and it's completely unfair advantage of what Google can offer for free. There's no question about it. They don't care about profitability of their certain business lines because it's just capturing the market. But I love what it actually does to the rest of the segment of the rest of the tech company segment to force to think of how can they innovate on top of what Google is giving for free. It's like a four minute mile. <laughs> Listen, it's amazing. We as consumers benefit from it. So is it unfair? Absolutely. Does it actually create better products out there? Yes. So do I wish Google did it this aggressively? Maybe not. But fundamentally, I think we are better off as an industry because some of those dynamics are happening, because it pushes us to the limits of innovation and it continuously drives us to create a much better offering for our customers. So they choose you over Google. Yeah, it's interesting to have these competitors that do these outrageous things like offering their products for free. It does force more creativity, more discipline among the rest of us. One of the things that I've noticed is, you know, you and I are both here in Silicon Valley, where a lot of companies are venture-backed, and that gives them a big runway before they have to make money. They can say, you know, this is the vision, and these, like you talked about, you know, monetization is not just about your price, it's about the strategy to get to revenue, and this, you know, saying, we're going to give some things away for free today because tomorrow we're going to own the market or we're giving things away for free to build adoption, to create habits, and we'll generate revenue tomorrow. And the rest of the world doesn't work like that. Most of the rest of the world is on is quarterly capitalism, right? We have to hit our number this quarter. We can't afford to invest for the long term. So what advice do you have? You know, a lot of people listening work with big, traditional, successful companies that are far away from Silicon Valley. How would you advise them to think about this role of of free, especially in terms of building ongoing relationships with their customers. So a couple of comments on what you just said. Does venture capital enable potentially more companies to go free? Yes and no. I actually think it enables sloppy freemium implementation as opposed to making it thoughtful and strategic because they have all of this extra funds to play with and they don't care in to make their cost bases profitable right from the beginning. So is it only venture capital companies can go freemium? No. Are the venture capital companies do freemium? I think they just do it sloppier because just incentives are not necessarily there. There's a lot of companies that did freemium that are bootstrapped from the beginning. SurveyMonkey is one perfect example. Malwarebytes, a cybersecurity company that I've worked in the past, um, also did freemium right from the beginning. Miro, uh, online whiteboard platform, also did freemium right from the beginning. That forces you, though, to understand the unique advantage of your freemium that can deliver to your business model so you can play on it right away. Yeah. So I would say that whether you have the funds like Google or venture capital to actually enable it, that's a kicker. That's amazing. And that's great that you have that ability to do so. But that does not limit you to whether or not you should be doing freemium. They have to think about it from a lot more strategic way and evaluate your equation of cost analysis for freemium from a different lens. Yeah, really important. I mean, two things that I'm taking away from that is number one, just because you have venture money does not mean you're going to be strategic in how you spend it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so number two, it doesn't give an excuse if you're bootstrapped or if you're a public company and you have different constraints, it doesn't give you a pass from innovation and from considering the power of free. And the other thing that you talk about, and you've, I've heard you say this several times now, 
is that you really have to think about what the return on the investment is, that that's kind of the concept of monetization is it's not just about, I give you something and you give me some money back. It's I'm thinking two or three steps ahead about what is going to create value that somebody's willing to pay for in the future as well. So it's like understanding how all the pieces fit together. And I'm wondering, we've talked about monetization. I know your title in many of the organizations where you've had a leadership role has been growth, which is a term, honestly, it was just a verb or a noun 10 years ago. Now it's a job. What does it mean to be in growth? If I ask you what you do, you don't say I'm in sales or I'm in marketing or I'm in product. You say growth. What does that mean? Especially for people who maybe haven't heard that job title before. So what does growth mean to me? Growth for me is an intersection of acquisition, retention, and monetization strategies. That's what results in growth. What does it mean on the actual company level? On the company level, it's taking data and it's tying product, marketing, and sales activities together to result in the best outcome possible. Growth is not about creating innovation and the next horizon for your product or developing your products. Growth is not about improving the scale or infrastructure. Growth is about taking what you already have and using product, marketing, sales at the intersection of acquisition, retention, and monetization, increasing what you have, distribution of what you have to the max. So it's taking your existing product and landing it into as many people's hands as possible. Now, what does that actually mean? That actually means to understand all of the user journeys, the drop-offs, where you're servicing the right segment, where you're not, breaking down the silos between the departments and creating value for the customer to make sure that you have the right acquisition strategy to get them in the best way possible, that you are retaining them appropriately and that you're monetizing them in the best possible way that the value exchange between you and the customer is at the optimal stage. So if there's limited spots at the table, at the executive table, what loses out? You know, there's so many new titles of chief blank officer. So if you have a chief growth officer who's kind of above product, marketing, sales, does that mean that those three people lose their spot at the table or does the table get bigger? Yeah. So I actually don't think it should be above. To me, it's a partnership. It's a partnership, but I prefer growth teams that are not reporting into marketing or not reporting into product because I don't want to be incentivized by what product is trying to achieve, or I don't want to be incentivized by what marketing is trying to achieve. I want to be incentivized on the company level and tie the two together. So there is a good friction that is happening between the departments and I can be the glue between them and sit side by side with them. So in a table, do you still have somebody responsible for um, engineering and a CTO, chief technical officer? Yes. Do you still need chief product officer? Yes. Do you need still chief marketing officer? Yes. Do you need still operations? Yes. But sales and growth, I think, are also very important aspects that you need to understand how important it is to your strategy, first of all. Not all the time that growth team is something that you need to have. It's also very dangerous to create growth team too early in your company because everybody should be on the growth team up until a certain scale. And it's only after you go into specializations of the teams, which starts create silos and potentially disjointed experiences for your customer and you enter after product market fit into that scaled stage as you're moving towards your second horizon on your product innovation, that's where growth team can help you. 
but I won't put growth hire as my first hire. I would also not put the growth team if the company is not ready to focus on self-serve monetization or is not ready to focus on there's nothing too broken about the user journey. So there has to be a real pain point that you're solving. So there's a right place at the right time. And depending on what your growth model is, growth can sit closer to marketing or growth can sit closer to product. But it's one of those roles that I'm most confused about myself because it means so many different things across different companies. Like head of marketing is pretty standardized definition across company to company. Head of growth can mean a slew of things from one company to next. And it's one of the most encompassing titles because it fundamentally says this is how this company grows and how the company grows, aka its growth model, is very authentic and local decision on each company, even in the same space, even in the same industry, because that's their competitive advantage most of the time. The two takeaways I have from what you said, for me personally, so one of them is that you don't need a growth person at the beginning. You need a growth person when you reach a certain level and you're trying to get to the next level. And I'm curious what that level is. So hold that thought. And then the second thing that I think is really interesting is that one of the signals that you need a growth leader is when the user journey feels broken, which we've all experienced, right? And I've seen it with a lot of my clients where sales says, we're doing a great job. We're selling a lot. But the customer success team or the support team or the account team says, but they're not staying. Retention, that retention. retention, And so, I mean, what I love about what you said is it's really the person who's responsible for all three metrics. Right. It's a department responsible for driving metrics as opposed to delivering on certain marketing campaigns or delivering on certain features. Or one metric. Or one metric. Absolutely. They can be definitely metric of focus, but you're exactly right. You're responsible for the performance of your customers in your product not for any specific functionality within your product. At what point, you said, you know, early on, everybody's doing growth, everybody's working together, probably they're all sitting at the same desk in the same room. At what point would you advise a company as a rule of thumb to start thinking about whether they need a growth lead? A couple of questions that I would want to ask, what are they trying to solve with the growth lead or the growth department? A lot of times there has to be a very well-articulated problem statement. We're losing customers because of this, or we have suboptimal experience here. We have nobody responsible for this, but there has to be already an ongoing indication that there's opportunity to be had, that there is something that already exists in the product that is not getting to the max distribution of possibly of how far it can get. But you also need to understand why. It's most dangerous to hire somebody, especially with very senior title, and say, go figure out what growth means for me. Growth is like your heart in your company. It's like what's pumping all of the blood through all of your system. And if you tell somebody else like, hey, go figure out where my heart is located in the body, like I don't even want to know, you can't outsource that out. You actually have to do a lot of that work yourself, understand what your growth system is and where the biggest opportunities, and then hire people to pressure test those assumptions. But for that, you need some scale. If you're just trying to get to product market fit, so you're not even operating or even not ensured that you've truly solved the market problem, you don't need a growth team. You need to just get to the product market fit, get to feature parity, get to actually an, an aha moment for the customers and see some of those retention numbers that you're solving somebody's problem. But as you start to grow, as you start to scale, What's going to happen with your acquisition is going to start lowering in intent. And your customers that you've achieved product market fit 
are no longer the customers that are coming through to your product. And that's where most of this perception versus reality and discrepancy in customer experience starts to happening because you don't really understand and you're not really surfacing everybody's problem. But I wouldn't hire a growth team, for example, to fix retention. To me, retention is a much bigger issue right out the front if you don't have it that potentially has issues with your product market fit or you're not marketing to the right use cases or you're not getting the right use cases to actually monetize. And I wouldn't just hire somebody to go fix it. I would really try to understand what are my opportunities and then hire the right growth person with the right skill set to be able to help you address the right area in your business or growth. So work for the CEO to do before they hire the growth person so that they know where to send that growth person once they're brought in. CEO, CPO, CMO, anybody on that side, whoever's holding that torch can come up with original growth model hypotheses. I'm just very against of outsourcing that because then you in the company have the most evidence to actually come up with the best hypothesis of what drives growth for you. Don't outsource it out to somebody else that is likely just going to slap something, some template on you, and then it potentially will just lead you nowhere. Yeah, that's so important. Do you want to do a speed round? I want to just ask you a bunch of quick questions for you to respond to off the top of your head. Yes, let's do it. You ready? Okay. First subscription you ever had? First subscription that I've ever had, Spotify. Your favorite subscription of the COVID era? Blue Apron. Something really valuable that you got for free? Mentorship. It's not product related, but mentorship from incredible people in my life. I love that. And a time you felt like a member someplace where you truly feel like you belong? I think SurveyMonkey, for me, is where I felt I was part of the ecosystem. It's one of the most memorable and defining moments in my career, and I truly felt like I was a vital part of that company. This was such a good conversation. Thank you so much, Elena Verna, for being my guest. Thank Robbie for having me. It's such a great conversation. That was Elena Verna, entrepreneur-in-residence and partner at Reforge. For more about Elena and about Reforge, go to reforge.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Elena, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating. And mention the Elena Verna pricing discussion if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews matter so much in helping others to find us. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. Music